My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Samuel Fuller. Will, I'll give it to you so you can do your imitation now. I actually don't have an imitation of Samuel Fuller, but uh, what I can tell you is that film is like a battleground. There's love, hate, action, mm. violence, death, in a word, emotion. I'm going to say right at the top, I think that Samuel Fuller is one of my favorite directors. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought of him in those terms until this week, but I mean, who has a hit rate better than this guy? Who grabs you by the balls, as he said oftentimes, and doesn't let go like Samuel Fuller? If you read a script and the first scene doesn't give you a hard-on, throw it away! I think if you ask anybody who knows Samuel Fuller, Uh, Is he a great director? They will say, yes. Yes, he is. But you know what's funny? I think his work has always felt and still feels just a little bit de classe. When people talk about it, they're like, oh, it's pulpy and, you know, it's cheap. But it's rare that you hear cinephiles talk about him in terms of style beyond the it's in your face. Which is weird, because when I watched all of his movies this week, it's evidently there. He's the prototypical B-movie director who used the fact that he was making B-movies to be able to tackle subject matter too dangerous, too extreme for the A-pictures. And yes, he's over the top, and everything is, you know, pow, 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 uh, hitting you over the head. But I don't think uh, what he's saying is less important And certainly not less intelligent than uh, so many of the A directors of the time. I mean, you know, you compare you compare him to Stanley Kramer and there's no comparison. I mean, you watch his films and while they are in your face, they're also incredibly complex. Like even something along the lines of the Crimson Kimono, which most places just described it as a detective story, is also about the relationships And the perception of racism between a Japanese cop and a Caucasian police officer. And this is stuff that, like, just didn't get tackled. I mean, there's a funny story Fuller says where the head of Fox at the time was like, All right, how much did your last picture make? And based on that, because this film has an interracial relationship in it, which was very, like, beyond the pale, even in 1959, will your movie make enough money? If it does, it can go through. And obviously the numbers added up and Samuel Fuller was able to make this movie that he genuinely believed. And, you know, his films are generally progressive. Certainly they're progressive compared to a lot of or most Hollywood films, but they don't fit into a neat box either. Uh, They're they're angry and they're conflicting and politically they don't subscribe to any one particular dogma. But he is a man who had an extraordinary life. Among the things that he did, he traveled the country as a reporter, meeting meeting the poor and the marginalized. And it was often their stories that he told and those characters that he was sympathetic to, which I think is probably one of the reasons why he has always seemed a little bit de classe. I mean, his first love was always journalism and kind of telling the truth and bringing it to the audience and getting it out there. And I think that kind of 
grab you by the head and kind of like scream in your face what's going on, what you believe in, whether it makes sense or it fits within a framework is what's most important to him throughout all these films. Like, just look at a picture like The Steel Helmet, a Korean War film made while the Korean War was going on that has a scene where a communist soldier is talking to an African-American and is like, you know, they make you sit at the back of the bus. They treat you like garbage. Like, why are you fighting for them? And it's not clear cut. Like, it's because it's America. Like, it's asking those questions because it genuinely wants. And by it, I mean, Samuel Fuller wants the audience to think about these things. Well, one of his most popular films is Pick Up on South Street from 1953, a kind of Cold War noir film. It stars Richard Widmark as a no good pickpocket who picks the wrong pocket. Uh, He steals some microfilm from Jean Peters, which contains some top secret information that she was going to give to her boyfriend, who is actually a communist spy. And, you know, the movie is a Hollywood anti-communist thriller, but the anti-communist elements of it um, are, are not particularly in the foreground. What it really is is a movie about these these sad, wasted, and desperate lives for whom matters of politics, matters of global international intrigue are just totally irrelevant. Widmark is, of course, suspected of having stolen the microfilm, and the police, he's already been locked up two or three times, the police uh, pull him in to talk to him, and they say something to him like, We know you're a criminal, but you're not a traitor. You're not a traitor, are you? And he says something like, what are you doing waving the flag at me? Because what does it matter to him? Later in the movie, there's a character played by Thelma Ritter, uh, a a desperate old woman, one of the people who's in, in the machinations of this plot. She plays an old woman who's, you know, borderline homeless. She lives in a really shitty little apartment and she spends her nights selling ties to people just you know, one by one by one. We see about five or ten seconds of her selling these ties by the docks to these derelicts, and it fades out. And you see that, and you think, oh my god, what an exhausting life. And then it fades to her at her apartment, getting home, exhausted, putting on a record on her little phonograph player that plays some music. You know, she lays in the bed, she's so tired, and you're thinking, God, that that music that she's playing on that one record is her only source of joy and happiness. And then finally, somebody who wants the microfilm comes in, and he threatens to shoot her, and she says, please shoot me, you'd be doing me a favor. Well, the whole movie is almost setting up this idea of, like, these global politics are going on around these people, and they have miserable lives in America. <laughs> Democratic, communist, what difference does it make for them at this point because their lives are shit and like Thelma Ritter in that scene she's just like you know what I'm so tired like death would be a way for me not to be tired anymore and I think what was weird about this movie is that I came to it really late after watching all the Fullers so it was almost a bit of a letdown of him like in studio mode and the film like peaks with Selma Ritter's monologue, which uh, Fuller plays in like one long take, pushing in on her about how she's old and she's miserable and she's only making money so she can have a fancy funeral and she's just, you know, saving it all to one day die. As she says, I guess I'm not going to get that fancy funeral, which is a devastating line in context. And a scene like that is 
emblematic of why Fuller is special because it is like the, the texture of the location, the emotions in the scene. They are the product of a man who had spent so much of his life observing human misery. He started, as you mentioned, as a newspaper reporter first in New York and then traveling the country, seeing America. He saw Klan rallies. He saw riots where people were killed in the street. He saw uh, communities ravaged by the Great Depression. Something I thought about was that as an artist, you are the sum of your life experiences. And I can't think of a filmmaker off the top of my head who had a life quite like Sam Fuller's and whose art was so imbued with the urgency and the emotions of what he witnessed. When I kind of mull over my reaction to pick up on South Street, it makes a lot of sense that it actually came after Park Row, Samuel Fuller swing for the fences, which is why like Pickup is playing it a little bit safer than Park Row, which was the film that he made and he put $200,000 of his own money into. You know, the thing about Fuller is that when you talk about him, it sounds like it'll be like rough and tumble and there's an intensity that we associate with intensity now, which is realism. And that's not really what he goes for in his films. It's almost like the artificiality of of the studio system that he's working in, he knows how to squeeze it and intensify it in a way that no other film can do. And I think Park Row is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I, I mean, his movies feel very real and raw and authentic. And certainly his movies from film to film can have wildly different textures to them. A movie like Pick Up on South Street with that Thelma Ritter scene feels very real, like quote-unquote realistic. A movie like 40 Guns, his big cinemascope western from 1957, it's this black-and-white, widescreen western with deep-focused cinematography where every frame is just so packed with visual information. It's it's so much to take in. Have you ever seen a movie that is more widescreen than 40 Guns? Like, within, um, like, 30 seconds, you're, like, bowled over, even if you're, like, watching it on your computer screen. I actually had a bit of a hard time watching it because it was almost just like like too much you know where's my eye supposed to go <laughs> then there are movies like shock corridor which are so stripped down and and seem to exist in a sort of dream state we'll get to shock corridor in more detail later i'm sure and yeah there are movies like park row which is one of my favorite kind of movies the big set movie a movie that takes place on one big gigantic set with a lot of rooms and a lot of doors and just the camera uh, flowing all the way through it and and you enjoy the artificiality of that big set environment i think that sam fuller is at once a very immediate filmmaker with his style but you look at something like park row and you also see something that a lot of actors like to say about him is that when possible, Fuller just wanted to play it all in one take. And if he didn't get that take, he does something that I rarely see as evident in classic Hollywood films. He punches in a shot to make it look like a cut, but it's not. So the shot like is all kind of grainier and it's a little soft because he's actually blowing up a frame to get a close-up of someone just to give the films a different kind of structural pace. Park Rowe also has that amazing single-take scene 
Um, okay, hang on. I'll, I'll explain what Park Row is about, then I'll say what the single the single take scene is. It's set in the 1880s in New York, and it documents a circulation war between two newspapers. One of the newspapers is owned by this woman. This, this she's a young woman who's taken over the empire, and it's the the established newspaper in town. And she's turned it into a bit of a yellow journalist rag. When her staff starts to protest, she fires them, and then. The staff, with an angel investor who's come along, create their own rival competitive newspaper, a real hard-hitting newspaper, and the rivalry becomes more and more escalated. And at one point, she uh, has her goons going out and you know defacing and ruining all of the all of the newspaper boxes of the newsstands that are selling this rival newspaper. And the editor of the new newspaper, he like runs out of the office with all of his cronies, and they all start just going along the street, like, punching all of their goons, getting into fights, throwing things on people. Then they go into another office, and then they go into another office, and it's this one long take, like the Copacabana scene in Goodfellas. Park Row is an interesting film when you consider its financial failure and what were probably the elements that went into that. Like, this was Samuel Fuller's A Passion Project. And I think something that you could pinpoint is that Fuller is so dedicated and passionate about the subject that he doesn't even kind of center the journalism on anything specific. Like, the new newspaper that is being started and these people are like, this is the newsman's newspaper. Their front page story for the first two days is a guy jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge. It's true. We don't really know what what the ideological issues are that separate these two papers. And it seems that what Fuller loves about journalism, and Fuller did, by the way, say that Park Row was his favorite of his own movies, which I think is a bit of a minority position. But what he seems to love about journalism is just like the physical, like the materiality of it. He loves the big old printing press. He loves uh, ink getting on people's hands. He loves the steam everywhere. I think he loves the deadlines. He loves the like men working together to get a story out there into the world that can just grab an audience and forced them to read what they put on the page. And, you know, journalism now, it's a very white-collar profession. It's a very privileged profession. Most of the people who are involved in journalism are college-educated. Many come from affluent backgrounds. In the vision of this movie, journalism is a working-class operation, and it's a very physical operation. Everything about it is like working with your hands and getting dirty and getting in the muck. While journalism, like you said, now is just people sitting at desks and sending off emails. (laughs) I mean, uh, Sam Fuller talked that when he was like a cub reporter, he had to go to Sing Sing to see all the electrocutions in the electric chair. And he could like smell the like people being killed. And it just kind of like, you know, he couldn't take it anymore. His boss is like, nope, you got to keep doing it because that's the beat you're working. Well, speaking of his journalism career, he had a strange route to becoming a director. After working as a journalist first in New York and then across America, he went to Hollywood and became a Hollywood screenwriter, pumping out a number of movies that were made. Uh, It Happened in Hollywood was one of them, uh, a couple others. Many of them were collected in that Sam Fuller at Columbia box set that was released recently. But after working for a number of years as a Hollywood screenwriter, he enlisted in the Second World War. He was an older enlistee. He was in, I think he was 29 when he enlisted, served a number of years, and this became one of the defining experiences of his life. 
He returned to the subject of war in many films, but he didn't find the subject of war glamorous. I, I think the films probably have a somewhat complicated relationship with war because many of many of his war films foreground the kind of camaraderie of the soldiers in battle. But they're surrounded by so much horror, so much death and decay. I mean, the films of Samuel Fuller, the war ones, they just want to avoid action at any cost because action equals men dying for no reason. There could be heroes in in his films, but they're usually like lost causes who will probably lose their mind by the end of it because they're driven too far or they just do it out of sheer desperation. And you can see that right from the get-go in something like The Steel Helmet or Fixed Bayonets, which like Will just said, is more about the guys hanging out and getting to know each other. Something that Fuller himself felt was incredibly important and he tried to do when he was in World War II. A recurring preoccupation in his movies, which I think stems directly from his experience in the war, was the thin line between sanity and madness. I know that for many years, decades, maybe even for the rest of his life after the Second World War, he would be haunted by horrible nightmares. Uh, I mean, he was almost certainly suffered some sort of post-traumatic stress. Uh, you know, he killed people in the war. He watched people die. He saw horrible atrocities. Many of the people in his war films, particularly the protagonist of the steel helmet, always seem on the verge of some sort of mental breakdown. And speaking of mental breakdown, that can take us to Sam Fuller's probably most famous film, Shock Corridor. And what I love about Fuller's career, and Fuller does not love about his career, is the fact that he was a beast that could thrive in the studio system because his pictures made money so he could continue to tackle the stuff that he wanted to do. But the moment that kind of new Hollywood was starting to rear its head and take the reins, Fuller was a dinosaur and he got pushed out of the door, but he could not give up. He had to keep making movies. So a lot of his films in the post-studio era are like poverty row style pictures. And those include two of his most classic ones, Shock Corridor and The Naked Kiss. And in fact, these two films were made for Allied Artists, which is the studio that used to be Monogram Pictures, the Poverty Row studio. Shock Corridor, which I think is my favorite Sam Fuller movie, it follows the story of a journalist played by Peter Breck, who wants to go undercover into a mental institution to solve an unsolved murderer. He thinks that the culprit is one of the people in this mental institution. The way he does it is to convince his girlfriend, played by Constance Towers, who's a stripper, he convinces her to claim that she is his sister and that uh, he has an unhealthy, perhaps even sexual preoccupation with her. And that winds him up in the mental institution. Now, of course, she goes along with this with a certain amount of trepidation. It is a mad plan for somebody to have, which which is uh, perhaps foreshadowing the thin line between sanity and uh, insanity that we see in this film. And the great thing about Shock Corridor is that it looks like a Poverty Row film. It's got the flat lighting, the kind of, you know, very simple sets but it's the best version of this with the kind of emotional complexity that only somebody working on Poverty Row could tackle with such brio and such controversial furor. There is no visual delineation between sanity and insanity in this movie, and there's no 
objective point of view that will make the viewer feel comfortable. The mental institution is depicted as these stark white rooms and hallways, and there are all of these dramatic shadows that are cast across the backgrounds and the characters. Uh, The cinematography, by the way, is by Stanley Cortez, who shot The Magnificent Ambersons. So visually, it's a very black and white movie. There are these forms that are in the foreground, these people, and there are these jutting German expressionist shadows that are in the background and sometimes in the foreground, and there's nothing else, you know? There's no kind of texture aside from that in this mental institution. So it has this very intense atmosphere. It feels like an insane space. It feels like an unreal, dreamlike space. And it doesn't feel like a safe space. Well, when people talk about like the punchiness of Sam Fuller, a lot of the time they're thinking of Shock Corridor because it's this right in-your-face thing that you cannot escape from these kind of very troubling concepts like an African-American man who believes he's the head of the Ku Klux Klan or these other people who say things like, you know, you can't tell if a person's insane or sane when they're asleep. (laughs) That really kind of like nudges the audience. And the places that this movie goes and the place where this movie ends is disturbing to any viewer who watches it to this day. It's scary to think how easily you can lose your identity. And it's scary to think of there being no barrier between you and the people who are in a, a mental institution and that there's there may be no difference between you and those people and you feel this is almost an articulation of where fuller was in his life at this point because he was seemingly reaching the end of the road for him as a filmmaker and shot corridor as kind of grandiose as it is is Full of autobiographical details. You almost feel like Sam Fuller is going, this could have been me in some form if I had pushed things just a little bit further. Another thing I like about Shot Corridor is it's, in terms of its ideas, in terms of its social commentary, it's the least restrained of Sam Fuller's films. It feels like when you enter that mental institution, you know, polite conversation is no longer possible. That african-american man who thinks he's the ku klux klan leader uh, is an example of that you know it, it feels like this very raw nerve and it feels like something that wouldn't be allowed in a regular movie you know it wouldn't i mean sam fuller could only make this movie if he brought it under a certain budget that's all that mattered i mean if you look at his next film which is his other allied artist picture the naked kiss which is literally shocking when you watch it and it's a movie that i had never actually watched before that you're sitting there and you're going all right when is that other shoe gonna drop because it's a story of a prostitute played by constant towers who has had enough and she's moved to a small town and she's changed her life and it seems like things are actually gonna be going her way i mean there are obstacles in her path but you know, her life may actually be on a different trajectory. And then the reveal of like this blue velvet style. Oh yeah, this suburbia that you're kind of moving into is even worse than what you came from and how the character then has to deal with this realization. This movie also has one of my favorite opening scenes of any movie where it literally opens with with her 
attacking the camera. The camera is from the, the point of view of her abusive pimp. And you see it, you know, shaking as she's coming towards it and punching it. And then her wig falls off, revealing that she's bald underneath. Uh, this is, you know, Fuller, the newspaper writer, where it's like, gotta grab him in that first paragraph. I was watching Street of No Return Fuller's last theatrical film and it starts with a black man the first shot of the movie receiving a hammer to the face and blood splatters everywhere and then there's a long tracking shot that when you watch it you do not know how they did it that goes through a like race riot and it's like cutting through the bodies as they're throwing each other through the frame the thing about Fuller is that after the naked kiss he seemed to be kind of like let out into the wind and he uh, made a picture called Shark which sounds so tantalizing it's like burt reynolds on a boat versus a shark but by all accounts nah not that good got taken away from by the producers and completely recut and that seemed to be the um pattern that would continue the rest of fuller's career he had a major comeback in 1980 when he made a long cherished dream project the big red one which the, the rough cut of it was 270 minutes. It was eventually released in a two-hour version, which was uh, significantly compromised from what he would have wanted. But uh, nevertheless, it was a major critical success. It's an autobiographical film about his own division in the army, starring uh, Robert Carradine, Mark Hamill, and Lee Marvin. And the two stars of 1941... So I consider this a sequel to Spielberg's 1941 because it's them then drafted into World War II. Uh, by the way, a semi-restored version of this movie was released about 10 years ago that brings the running time up to about two and a half hours and is the preferable version. And it'll never be released on Blu-ray because I think they may have done the restoration standard uh, definition elements only. Ugh, what a waste. So if you get the big red one on Blu-ray, it's actually the th theatrical cut. This movie was enough of a success to get Fuller a big big studio job directing a horror movie for Paramount called White Dog. Originally supposed to be directed by Roman Polanski. Oh, you know, he also would have done a good job of it. Well, supposedly the story was completely different, and originally it was about a black man who trains a white dog to only attack Caucasians. Oh, man. Well, that's not what the finished version is. No. The finished version, a young woman gets a seemingly friendly white dog who, whenever it sees a black person, attacks, violently attacks that person. She realizes that the dog has been trained by a former owner to be a white dog, a white supremacist dog. And uh, she takes it to a, an African-American dog trainer who will attempt to deprogram it. Uh, now, obviously an anti-racist film, but it attracted a lot of negative advanced publicity, uh, including from anti-racist groups who thought it actually was an incitement to racial violence. And it, incredibly, Paramount just shelved the movie, didn't release it. And like, they didn't want to budge on it either. And it only got to play in the States when a programmer tricked Paramount into thinking that they were only screening it one night, but it was actually a week of bookings where it got rave reviews. And even then, they did not even put it out on VHS. Somebody said to me on Twitter this week that uh, Paramount still doesn't respond to any theatrical booking requests for this movie. Although it did get released by the Criterion Collection in 2008, which incredibly enough was the first 
North American or any home video release of White Dog. Uh, and it is a masterpiece. It's not difficult to grasp that fact. Like, it's not like a little niche thing. The people who greenlit the movie actually aren't still working there. And I happen to know that it was Michael Eisner and Don Simpson who greenlit the movie <laughs> when they were the heads of Paramount. I don't think either of them were big Samuel Fuller fans. I think they just wanted to make a Friday the 13th type horror movie. And Samuel Fuller or, you know, he had just done the big red one. So, you know, that was kind of an A-level movie. So sure, let's let's give it to him. And a few years ago, I listened to an episode of Alec Baldwin's podcast. <laughs> Why? <laughs> where he interviewed Michael Eisner. I don't know. It, 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 an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. Not a mistake I would make now. But anyway, he was asking Eisner if he had any regrets or anything that didn't go well during his time at Paramount. And Eisner said... Well, you know, I greenlit this picture called White Dog, and you know, we 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 had a director who made it who who just kind of, who kind of bungled it. Alec Baldwin at that point interjects and he goes, "I hate that movie." Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. But anyway, White Dog is out for everyone listening to this podcast to discover. And hey, it wasn't all bad for Sam Fuller because after that, he moved to Paris full time. And in Paris, Sam Fuller was treated like a god. Yeah, he got to make a movie called Thieves After Dark where uh, new wave darling Claude Chabrol played the villain in the movie. Yeah, he directed a couple more movies. He worked as an actor for hire. And of course, he was one of those directors who was always appreciated by the French critics. Uh, notably Jean-Luc Godard, who gave him a cameo role in Piero Le Fou, where he gave that iconic line about film being like a battleground. Again, I think that Sam Fuller is a guy that everybody knows is good, but it's weird to consider that, like, I feel like they're not just watching all of his movies that much. You know, it was incredible to be immersed in his work this week. I think I watched, you know, maybe six or seven of his movies this week. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it just felt, you know, I feel like I'm in the shock corridor now. It was just so intense. <laughs> so much emotion. So much love, hate, violence, death. That's what movies are, Will! We interrupt your regular schedule programming for a few announcements. First off, I'd like to thank our new Patreon subscribers, which include Felix Dembinski, Jacob Spence, Quinn Dobbins, Yesh Yen Damuri, Truman Segal, David Gardner, James Waters, Nate Hamlet, and Quasar. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not continue to do this without you. And if you're following me on Twitter, you may have noticed that I've had to suspend the Gold Ninja video webpage because of pandemic-related issues. Hopefully, we'll come back in a few weeks, but until then, why not go to patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub and become a Patreon subscriber. And if you're looking for some movies to watch, check out the Spectacle Theater Twitch channel because on April 16th, the Laser Blast Film Society, a group that I run with Peter Koplowski, will be presenting select films by Mickey Reese, a filmmaker that's directed over 25 feature films, never released any of them. I interviewed him many episodes ago, but through the spectacle... We'll be showing two of his films that have never been released anywhere. Mickey Reese's Alien, which is a wild biopic about Elvis, and Strike Dear Mistress and Cure His Heart. Those two movies will be screening for free on April 16th. Check out the Laser Blast Film Society Facebook page for more details. And make sure not to miss our screening of two Moturn Media films. Films directed by Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh. 
every Saturday for the next few weeks. This upcoming Saturday, April 18th, there'll be a screening of Don't Let the River Beast Get You, a favorite of mine and Will, and The Paperboy, Matt Farley's first feature film. These screenings are great because you get to enjoy these movies with a crowd of online people, and Matt and Charlie are also in the chat room if you have any questions to ask them as the movie's playing. So thank you again for all your support in these difficult times. And now we'll return you to your regular scheduled programming. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you're watching. What has been trapped at home all this time forced you to discover? So again, that is importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we're finally revisiting Peter Bogdanovich and his movie, St. Jack. You say finally revisiting, but I feel like Peter Bogdanovich is one of those guys who inevitably just comes up all the time. The fans were clamoring for the Jack, Will. That's right. If, if you're like me and Justin, Peter Bogdanovich, he's just in your DNA. Mm-hmm, yeah, we're young, pasty-faced, white, bespectacled nerds who love movies. He's what we dream of being and also what we fear becoming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you can hear us talk about St. Jack and rail against or praise Bogdanovich by uh, giving us $5 a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. What are we doing next week? Will? Well, this is a topic that I'm bringing to the table. I don't know if Justin's actually heard about this filmmaker before. I have, but I've never watched any of his movies. It's the British documentary filmmaker, Nick Broomfield. For those who don't know him, he's sort of a Louis Thoreau or Michael Moore type figure, a first person documentary filmmaker. Works in a lot of sordid subject matter, a lot of stuff about true crime, a lot of stuff about uh, rather trashy celebrities. The iconic image of him carrying his own camera and his own boom mic, stumbling into weird neighborhoods and getting scary people to say unexpected things. Uh, He was a filmmaker who I liked a lot when I was in high school. I haven't thought a lot about him in recent years, and I'm frankly just really curious. I I just want to revisit his movies to see if or how they hold up. The only time I've ever heard of him in the last decade has been in dismissive, like, ugh, Nick Broomfield making another one of his documentaries. Yeah, I've heard that too. So I'm very eager to revisit some some of these ones and see were, were they bad? Uh, have I grown? Have I aged? Was mm. there something there? Well, I guess we'll find out. So the movies that I'm suggesting that we, we start with are Eileen Wernos' The Selling of a Serial Killer, which is, you know, one, one of probably his most famous documentary. Then Heidi Fleiss, Hollywood Madam, and then finally Tales of the Grim Sleeper, which is one of his more recent ones. And when I saw it a few years ago, I thought it was very good. So the thing about me, and I'll say this on the episode too, is that I am not a true crime person. So I'm excited to jump in to something that I do not particularly like. You see, I'm not even particularly a true crime person either. But what I do like is, you know, sleaze and a hideous, shameful subject matter. Ooh, I am excited about his documentary on that famous madame whose husband directed Skinner. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll get all we'll get into that. <laughs> so until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Normally, in the back matter, Justin and I often talk about things that we went out and did. You know, we've talked many times about movies we went to see together or events from our lives as happening, cool, 
urban hipsters. <laughs> but, you know, we're Peter Bogdanovich types, if you will. We're housebound, but we did both take part in a screening this weekend. Justin and Peter with the Laser Blast Film Society here in Toronto partnered with the Spectacle Theater in New York. Ah, what a beautiful partnership that is. And they're together hosting a retrospective of the films of your favorites and mine, Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh, the men behind Motern Media. They're doing a streaming retrospective that takes place over a number of weeks on Spectacle's Twitch page. And on Saturday... Uh, we were fortunate enough to watch Local Legends and Freaky Farley with a sold-out <laughs> digital chat room. Well, I would have to say that that group was probably the most people that had watched a Matt Farley film all at once. Yeah, and in the chat, uh, Charles Roxburgh and Matt Farley were there chiming in, answering questions. Uh, you know, gamely taking any mystery science theater type commentary. Well, there wasn't that much. Mostly just people discovering this filmmaker or already in love with this filmmaker and just being kind of amazed that they had never heard of this person before. Especially in the order which Peter picked of local legends Freaky Farley. It's kind of the perfect way to introduce someone to the Motern media world. Well, local legends, I mean, I feel like we've kind of made it a cause to advocate for this movie. It's almost as if I have put it out on Blu-ray, for example. <laughs> That's right. And you know, every time every time somebody sees it, every time somebody logs it on Letterboxd, any, every time somebody tweets about it, I, I take that as a personal victory. <laughs> and now, Freaky Farley was one that... When I watch it, I was like, yeah, this is fun, but it's not as, like, fun as the later day uh, Matt Farley ones. Like, don't let the rubies get you. But now that I've been kind of, like, enveloped in this filmography, Freaky Farley felt, like, so fresh and different. And I could, like, I was on the perfect wavelengths of understanding exactly what they were going for. Yeah, it's not quite as ha-ha funny as the later ones are. It's more it's more of a mood piece. It's yeah. more about this strange tone that it creates. I think it's the closest that they've ever gotten to recreating the films that they love. Yeah, I mean it is shot on 16mm film, which is amazing and heroic. And the fact that like it has the structure of Silent Night Deadly Night Part 2 that it's only 80 minutes. But there is so much stuff crammed into it. It turns into a men on a mission film at the end. Like sitting there and watching it in my home, I could not believe that every film festival that they submitted it to turned it down. And, you know, I was on the front lines of it, too. Like I when Peter watched it, he didn't know who these people were. He wasn't sure. Like, is it a joke? Is it like, are they are they serious? And I, I mean, that's the magic of the movie. Well, yeah, because it's so internally coherent. The tone never wavers. Nobody ever winks. And the acting style that these people have in the film remains so consistent throughout <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that it's that you watch it and you think, how can people be this committed to the bit? The strength that it takes to make a movie like this and just assume that there will be an audience out there for you. Because, like, I could not do something like this because I'd be like, what are people going to think of this? Like, will they think it's funny? It didn't matter. It made each other laugh. So they went out there and they made this movie. And, you know, watching Local Legends, that last scene where, well, it's not the last scene, but one of the last scenes where 
uh, Matt has spent the whole movie being told, okay, well, you're going to perform at a 1,500-seat auditorium, and that's going to be the Manchester Comedy Showcase. And that's like, oh, well, it's going to be a smaller auditorium. Oh, well, actually, it's going to be the basement of my mom's house, and there's going to be seven people in the audience. And, oh, you're actually going to have to – can you lend me 10 bucks? I don't have money for you right now, but can you lend me 10 bucks? Uh, oh, you have a 20? I'll take the 20. And so it's so depressing. And then he puts on the best set that he's ever put on in his life, and everybody just has such a great – time watching it and it made me think again of inside lewin davis where the movie ends with lewin davis performs then bob dylan goes on and you think oh okay he never made it you know just bad luck bob dylan was the one who made it but in this movie it's like okay so bob dylan made it he's not gonna make it that doesn't mean he can't do a great fucking set somebody wrote on letterbox i don't have their name in front of me right now but they had like the perfect observation that you know all these movies have people on set with an audience that doesn't care and that's not the truth usually it's like seven people in the audience intently staring at you as you do this thing that they probably have no interest in it's a movie that could have only been made and and could have only could have only resonated so much by a man with Matt's exact level of success. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully, like all these L.A. people who can just beam into the Spectacle Theater and watch this movie and are discovering this and are like, what, what, what is this magical movie? Will suddenly give Matt not more power, but like a wider audience. And I think the thing that I was worried about that like, well, what if like Matt gets a massive audience and they enjoy it in a different way, and by that I mean the wrong way, <laughs> than the movies are supposed to be kind of experienced. Will it change the way he makes his movies? I don't think so. I think that he and his pals will always make the same movies. And also, they, they've they earned the right to a big audience. They, they've been our, our little secret for too long. 